0: We're now continuing and asking questions about the nation of Israel in the Bible and throughout history. And now we're on question number nine. Question number nine. What is replacement theology? What is replacement theology? Well, the problem is in the terminology. This is usually the case with many things, especially controversial things. We have to first establish the terminology. What do we mean by the words we use? We cannot be wrangling about words. We have to be forthright. We have to use words according to their standard meanings. If we speak about a monkey, we cannot call the monkey an elephant. We cannot call the elephant an airplane, so forth. Words have meanings in context, and therefore we have to understand. Well, replacement theology is typically the term used by those who believe in Marcionism. In modern days, it's called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism says that the opposite view, which is usually called covenant theology, the opposite of dispensational theology is covenant theology, and dispensationalists will say that the covenantal theologians, they believe in replacement theology. Well, there's a problem. There's deception in the diction, fiction in the diction when they say that. Why? Because covenantal theology is not replacing anything, but they say we are replacing. Covenantal theology isn't replacing anything, yet they say you are replacing the church In the place of Israel. Israel has always, they say, been the apple of God's eye, the pupil of God's eye. Very delicate to him, and no one should ever say anything cross, anything against, or do anything against the physical nation of Israel. And if you ever do so, God will be angry at you and he will judge you. If you ever do anything against physical Israel whether as a nation or individual Jews. Regardless of whether they're living wickedly, regardless of whether they deserve a penalty from God or not, they say, no, no, no. Nothing like that. The church, they say, in the New Testament, according to us, according to covenantal theologians, the church replaces Israel. When actually they misunderstand Israel in the first place, and they misunderstand church in the second place. The church never replaced Israel because God always told physical Israel to believe in the gospel, to obey the gospel, to follow Christ. A few of them did, most of them did not. The ones that did not deserved the wrath of God. Those who did believe, they received the salvation of God. That is Israel. So those who did believe the gospel throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament, they are the church. They are the true church. The true church consists of those who believe in the gospel, which existed even in the Old Testament, and it started to be announced in explicit positive expressions in Genesis 3.15, immediately after the fall immediately after the fall in Genesis 3.15. And there are many prophecies and many explanations of the gospel throughout the Old Testament. Now, if it exists throughout the Old Testament, then that proves that Adam, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the prophets, that they all preached the gospel, they all believed the gospel, so that they were a part of the true church in the Old Testament, And that continues on into the New Testament. Before the time of the Hebrew nation, there weren't Hebrew people. When did the Hebrew nation begin? In the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons, which became tribes, correct? Before that, there was no Hebrew nation. That means that Adam, Abel, and Noah were not Hebrew in the sense of a nation. They were not that. And so they believed before circumcision. For example, circumcision did not exist until Genesis chapter 17. And even Abraham believed before circumcision was instituted. This is clearly explained in Romans 4. So the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and throughout, physically, yes, chosen by God to receive the benefits of God, such as the Word of God. But that doesn't mean that they all were true believers and all were saved. Those who were true believers, those who were saved, they consist of the church. Well, that church continues, is not replaced, but continues into the New Testament. It continues into the New Testament, and in the New Testament, the church consisted in the early days of the apostles or the preaching of the apostles in the early days in the book of Acts, in those days, the church was mostly Jewish and partially Gentilic. But as time progressed, A.D. 70, A.D. 100, and later, more Gentiles believed than Jews. And so in the church, the true church, the, those who believe the gospel, they continue and believe what Abraham Moses, Isaiah, and the rest, what they believed. That continues today. What we believe is what Abraham believed. The true gospel that we believe, Abraham also believed that true gospel. So he's a part of the church, and we are also a part of the church, if we truly believe. But even today, the visible church, those that actually gather Not everyone who gathers and claims to be the church is actually the church in the real sense, in the spiritual saved sense. Everyone who physically gathers is not spiritually gathered before God because they don't have hearts that have been converted. They are unconverted people in the physical sense. They appear to be the church, but they're not the real church. This is the biblical Understanding And this is the biblical understanding of the place of the physical nation and even the physical church, the spiritual nation and the spiritual church. It's all in this, in this way explained from Genesis to Revelation. So there is nobody. The church is not replacing Israel. Now, those who believe, some of those who believe in covenantal theology, they go to unbiblical, unwarranted extremes to denounce every Jew and to denounce everything the nation of Israel does. There are some who do that. That is unbiblical. We've already seen in our previous points how that is unbiblical. It's unbiblical to do so, it's contrary to Romans 11. After the day of Pentecost, Romans 11 was written, which means it applies to us and it applies until the return of Christ. Romans 11. Okay, so replacement theology. It's a misnomer. They are miscategorizing what's the actual issue. Nothing is being replaced. Not in the sense that they mean it. Now, To prove that the church existed, the true church existed, before the day of Pentecost, let's look at a few references to show that. We start in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. We have to prove that the church existed before the day of Pentecost because those dispensationalists, Marcionites who believe that we believe in replacement theology, they say there was no church we cannot call the true believers before the day of Pentecost, we cannot call them the church. The church only exists from the day of Pentecost onwards. And there are other aspects to it. They say they were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit They were not saved from their sins. They did not believe in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. They believed like that. And only after the day of Pentecost did people believe in the death of Christ and did people have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. But that's not the case. That's not true. Now, in reference to the church, Matthew 16, Matthew chapter 16 And Christ is asking His disciples about who people say He is. And 16.16 says, 16.16, And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Jesus tells Peter that I will build my church. I will build my church. The dispensational interpretation says, I will build, which means it did not exist yet. However, there's a problem. Why would Jesus say, I will build my church if the concept of church is entirely strange, completely foreign to the ears of the apostles? Why would he even use the word church if they knew nothing of the church? Shouldn't he be explaining something here? That means that he already had the existence of the church The apostles understood that. But in verse 18, Jesus is saying, it will continue and I will continue to build it and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. The devil and his demons and all wicked men will not overcome or overpower the church that Jesus builds. He's been building it since the time of Adam and Eve and he will continue to build it And nothing will consume it. Nothing will destroy it. Now, if that's unconvincing, because it says, I will build, let's go to chapter 18. Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Remember the familiar passage on church discipline. What to do when there's a brother who does not repent of sin. First it says, go privately to him. The individual should go. Then two or three witnesses should go. Then it says in 1817, 1817, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Does it not say in 1817, tell it to the church? explain the sin to the church, and if he won't repent when the church hears about it, then expel him like a Gentile and tax collector. Well, how is it that they're going to practice this or understand this if no church exists? It could only be possible if the church already exists for them to understand what to do. Otherwise, they have to wait until the day of Pentecost. And only after the day of Pentecost will they understand, okay, Jesus, you've been saying this word church. We were completely clueless during the three and a half years of public ministry. Though we were taught by the greatest and best teacher, most superior teacher of all time, we had no clue about it because you never explained it to us. So it's your fault, really. But then on the day of Pentecost, because you now give us the Holy Spirit, now we understand that's what dispensationalists want us to believe. And that's impossible. The church already did exist, and Jesus is explaining it. So, furthermore, Acts chapter seven. Acts chapter seven. This is Stephen. Acts seven, thirty-eight. Acts seven, thirty-eight. Stephen. The faithful disciple is preaching the gospel and recounting the history of Israel to his accusers who are about to murder him to death uh, or persecute him to death uh, or kill him, murder him. And in 738, Stephen says this, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. The New American Standard Bible, in verse 38, translates the Greek word as congregation. If you will notice, notice in your footnote, it will say church, and the Greek word is Ecclesia, 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 which is also in Matthew 16, Matthew 18, is used here by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. Ecclesia means church. Usually it's translated church, but on other occasions it's rendered like this congregation. Why? Because the NASB. Having enough dispensationalists on the translation committee, did not want to translate it church. This is the one who was in the church in the wilderness, together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. They think if you say church or translate it church, people will be confused because nobody believes the church existed in the Old Testament. But actually, it did exist in the Old Testament. As Stephen says in Acts 7.38, that's talking about the generation of Moses. So the assembly of the people, the group of the people, the congregation of the people, Stephen calls the church. The church in the wilderness. Under Moses. So that means it existed then. The visible church existed in great numbers in the millions, but the spiritual church existed also in the wilderness with Moses. Moses, Aaron, Miriam, Joshua. These were among the few named parts or people of the spiritual church. Spiritual church in the midst of the physical church in the Old Testament. All right, those are a few examples. Now, does the New Testament also consider it that way, look at it that way? Yes. Even in reference to the Old? Yes. First, we find this in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, where the Apostle will make this distinction in reference to the physical Jews who are living, both in his time, but also in previous generations Romans 2:25 We'll see he makes mention in terms of the word circumcision of the physical church and the spiritual church or physical Israel and the true spiritual Israel Romans 2:25 For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. The true Jew, according to verse 29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, if inside him, in his soul, or as he says here, of his heart, if he is circumcised of heart, by whom? By the Spirit. Not by man, but by the Holy Spirit. And if he is praised by God, then he is a true Jew. Though physically he might be a Jew, he's not one inwardly unless these things have taken place. And then outwardly it shows... By his keeping the law, by his obedience, his godliness, or fruit, fruit of the Holy Spirit. Notice we see here in 29 that it mentions the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who circumcises. But did the Spirit circumcise Abraham? Did the Spirit work in him? Yes. Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3. 3. We read 3.13 and 14. The blessing of Abraham that we receive is known as the blessing of Abraham. And who did that entail? Or what blessing came to Abraham? 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us, From the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What is the blessing of Abraham that comes to the Gentiles? The promise of the Spirit through faith. And that happens in Christ Jesus. Did Abraham believe in Christ Jesus according to verses 13 and 14? Yes. Did Abraham have the Holy Spirit according to verses 13 and 14? Yes. Did Abraham have faith in Christ Jesus? Yes. Just as Abraham did, we do. Just as Abraham was a true Jew or a true Hebrew, so we are. And you say, are we also, are we Jewish? Yes, spiritually speaking, we are. Notice 3, 26. Galatians 3, 26, 26 to 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Neither For there neither is Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. That means Abraham belonged to Christ. And if we belong to Christ, then we are spiritual offspring of Abraham. True Israel. True spiritual Israel. Galatians 6. Galatians 6 and verse 16. Galatians 6, 16. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. That is, upon the Israel of God. we ask, who is the Israel of God? It is those who walk by this rule. What is the rule? Verse 15 says, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The new creation is everything. This is the same concept he preached in Romans 2, 25 to 29, which we read a moment ago. He's saying the same thing. If we walk by this rule, then there is peace and mercy upon us. And he calls us, the same ones, the Israel of God. That's the true spiritual Israel. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle is speaking this way. The Apostle, contrary to dispensationalism, the Apostle is not saying Israel of God equals Physical Jews who believe in Christ and only physical Jews. He doesn't mean that. He's talking about physical Jews and physical Gentiles who believe in Christ. They, together as one body, as one church, as one Israel, are called the Israel of God. That's his meaning. There is no other way to take him in the book of Galatians, and we just excerpted a few passages in Galatians to prove this. And yet, this is throughout. Okay? So, replacement theology is a misnomer. Covenantal theology is correct in reference to there being one gospel, one people of God, one way of salvation in Christ, believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. From Adam until the end of the world, that's the only way to be saved. So, the church is not replacing Israel the way that the dispensationalists mean. Point number 10. Number 10. Will the Lord judge Israel and the church separately and differently? Will the Lord, on the day of judgment, when he returns, will the Lord judge Israel, the physical nation, and the church After the day of Pentecost, the church, will the Lord judge Israel and the church separately? Is there going to be separate judgments on the day of judgment? Which implies different groups at different times for different reasons, as it says here, and differently. Is there going to be something like that on the day of judgment or not? The answer is no. Absolutely not. There will not be separate judgments whatsoever. All the wicked will be on the left hand of Christ, all the righteous on the right hand of Christ. And they will be comprised of Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, everyone will be held accountable before The Lord. There is no separate judgment. Let's see this in the book of. First, we go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. The main point to notice in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 is that. Two groups are one, the believing ones. Two groups are one. Two nations are one nation. The buildings become one. The people become one. And the men become one. The bodies become one body. Everything is one and united. 2.11, Ephesians 2.11 Therefore, remember... That formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Then if the two groups... The two nations are made one, and there is peace between them, and we are one group, one building, one man. If that's the case, then there is no separate judgment. We are all, therefore, in the category of the saved, the believers, the righteous. And that takes us to Matthew. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, 31. Matthew 25, 31. Where our Lord explains the day of judgment when He returns. And we see that there's two groups. Not Israel and the church. Not Israel divided up or the church divided up. Nothing like that. It's simply... The sheep on his right, the goats on his left. That is, the believers on his right, the unbelievers on his left. Matthew 25:31. "But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the na- and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep. From the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you, hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you. Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment, eternal life. Only two groups. The sheep on the right are the believers who show by their life, by their godliness, holiness, good works, that they love Christ. The unbelievers show by their rotten fruit that they don't belong to Christ. It's only these two groups. Nowhere is a distinction made between Israel and the church on the day of judgment, it's only the righteous and the wicked. These are just a few examples. There are many examples to prove this point. Nowhere in any passage of Scripture can a dispensationalist say that there will be separate judgments and different judgments. They say different and separate because Israel is only tested or judged based on whether they keep the law or not. Not whether they believe in Christ or not. But we've already shown that everyone must believe in Christ, Jew and Gentile, to be saved. Believe in the death of Christ. From Adam until the end of the world, they must believe in Christ. So they cannot be judged on a different basis, saying, well, Jews are required to have faithfulness, good works, in reference to the law of Moses, but not Gentiles. Gentiles just are supposed to believe in Christ. Raise your hand, pray a prayer, go forward, and you're saved. You believe in Christ. That's the way that they take salvation for the Gentiles. That's not the case either. They misunderstand the gospel, fundamentally misunderstand the gospel. They misunderstand sin, misunderstand grace, and misunderstand why Jesus came into the world to die for sin. Number 11. Numbers 11 and 12. Let me announce them and answer them together. They are distinct in that one mentions the Bible and the other one mentions morality. But number 11. Do Christians and the American government have a biblical obligation to support Israel? Do Christians and the American government have a biblical obligation. Does the Bible teach that we are obligated to support Israel? That's one. Number or that's number 11. Number 12. Does the American government have a moral obligation? A moral obligation to support Israel by aiding an ally. A moral obligation to support the nation of Israel and Jewish people generally by aiding, that is, monetary aid, military aid, economic aid, whatever kinds of aid, aid an ally. Is the nation of Israel our ally or not? And if they are our ally, are we morally obligated to support them? To answer this, we have to go back to these both of these questions. We have to go back to Romans 11. Remember what we saw there in Romans 11 in reference to both individual Jews and the nation? Firstly, our attitude, our stance toward them must be one of humility, not conceit. Humility, not arrogance. Remember he says... In 11.20, do not be conceited, but fear. Do not be conceited, but fear. So, when we look at the nation of Israel, if we're looking at them in humility, we have to be looking at them through a biblical lens. Which means what? That whenever they do what is right and good, then we Christians, to the extent that we express our views and vote accordingly and insist that our representatives do what we want, to the extent that Israel does what's right, then we should tell our representatives to support them. We support them and we pray for them to do what's right. Morally, what's right? Are they living in their society A peaceful society. Are they promoting peace? Are they promoting freedom? Are they promoting freedom of religion? Are they being fair and just with their citizens? Are they being treated with equal treatment? Or is there genocide happening within the nation of Israel? Are the Jews today committing genocide against every group, every other group of people, every other ethnicity that lives in their country? Are they committing genocide? Are they poisoning them? Are they gathering them up and putting them in gas chambers? Are they dropping bombs on them? What are they doing? We're talking about those in their country. If they're not doing that, then that's good. If they have freedom of religion, then that's good. Correct? Correct? So we should support that. However, if they were doing the opposite, what if they were committing genocide in their country? What if they were worshipping idols? What if they were promoting pedophilia and sodomy? What if they are doing that? Then we say, no, stop it, don't do that. We preach against it and act against it. Say, if you want our assistance, if you want us to remain allies then you must stop doing these things. They are sins against God. And you know it because even the Old Testament has much to say about sins. Sins that many people commonly commit. What's the basic answer? The answer is to the extent that they are following the Bible and morality, common grace, the conscience on the human heart, Romans 2, 14 to 16, then we support them. But to the extent that they're not doing it, then we oppose them and tell them to stop. Otherwise, we cannot support them. Having said so, most of the people, most people are not paying attention to the news. The majority of men do not pay attention to the news and most women I said, majority of men and most women. Most women do not pay attention to the news. So you're making judgments based on ignorance. You don't know what's happening in the world, and you're coming to conclusions that are irrational, illogical, and even unbiblical conclusions. (coughs) Unless you know what's actually going on in the world, in the nation of Israel, or in the nation of Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, Lebanon. If you don't know what's actually going on in those countries, then how can you say anything with any confidence and authority? You don't know what you're talking about. So the the humble thing is the humble thing to do is to get rid of your ignorance. First get rid of your ignorance, know what's actually happening and when you collect the, the evidence, the facts, then you'll know what's actually happening in the world. Otherwise, keep quiet about it and don't presume to know what you're talking about. Don't speak out of ignorance. And ignorance is not a virtue, ignorance is a vice. People think ignorance is a virtue, but it's not. Ignorance is a vice, it's a sin. How can you be making judgments based on ignorance? It's a sin. So pay attention to the news, pay attention to the right news. Don't be deceived because the majority of the press, the majority of the media will not tell you what's actually happening in the world. They won't actually tell you what's even happening in your own country. They won't tell you accurately. You have to be discerning and you have to read different sources and come to the conclusion of what actually happened two weeks ago, or on the 7th of October. What actually happened? What was building up to that? And what actually happened, and what has been happening since then, since Hamas invaded Israel? Yes, Hamas invaded Israel. Whether Israel knew it was going to happen or not, that's another point to make. But Hamas did invade Israel, and they massacred 1,400 People in Israel, which which is an egregious crime, we wouldn't want that to happen to us, or any nation wouldn't want that to happen. That's what actually happened. Israel didn't do anything purposely in that way to violently to provoke a violent reaction like that. That's what they did, and it's not just backing up now in terms of background. Hamas isn't working alone. They are working with other <clears throat> terroristic and uh, organizations and dictatorships like Iran. But even Iran and Hamas are being funded by the U.S. government. The U.S. government, especially the Democrat Party and to some extent the Republican Party. They are the ones giving billions of dollars to terrorists so that the terrorists can create worldwide disasters. Because, also, the billionaires of the world, the Rockefellers of the world, the George Soroses of the world, the Bill Gates of the world, the Klaus Schwabs of the world. If you don't know these names, check them out. These billionaires are the ones instigating wars and conflicts and violence, knowing that Muslims historically hate Jews and Christians. So what do they do? They rile up the Muslims and give them the ability to commit violence against Jews and Christians. And the same with other groups and races. They make black people fight against white people. White people fight against black people. Yellow people fight against other yellow people. Koreans and Japanese... Things like that happen. Even in South America. Brown against brown in South America. It's happening. Why? Because the billionaires are working to destroy us. And they will use ancient hatred and revive ancient hatred with money and weapons and ideology. That's what they're doing. So there's more to it than simply who owns the land of Israel. There's more to it than that. Be aware of it and act accordingly, believe accordingly. Finally, then, to answer questions 11 and 12, to the extent that Israel, the physical nation, is biblical and moral, then we support it, just like we would do to Canada and Mexico, just as we would do to any other country. To the extent that they are biblical and moral, we support it. To the extent that they are sinful, we object and we say, no, put an end to it, stop it. Or we will not be your ally. We will not be your friend. That should be the attitude just as it was in the Bible. Did not Joseph in Egypt work with Pharaoh? Did not Daniel work with the Babylonians and work for the Babylonians and the Persians? Did not Mordecai and Esther serve in the court of Persia? Did they not work with unbelievers to the extent that the unbelievers were willing to do what was right? And the same goes in our generation. We work with people to the extent that they are willing to do that which is righteous civilly and righteous biblically. We want at the bare minimum civil righteousness, general peace and safety in society. That's what we want generally. But even more, ultimately, we want that peace and safety to be able to preach the gospel so that they have the righteousness of Christ. Not merely civil righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ so that they can be saved. That's 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7. In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.